Today on Blue 58, Rich Bisaccia was hired to put the special back in the Packers special teams. How did he do in 2022? And what does year two look like with some new faces in place? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. We're talking special teams today. Going a little bit out of sequence, I had planned to talk about defensive backs today as our final well, our final real position preview specialists, it's its a bunch of different positions, and special teams in general is something I wanted to talk about when we talked about special teams, but the more I pulled kind of on this thread just in the back of my mind, the more I just wanted to talk about special teams. So let's talk about special teams. If you are like me, special teams gives you sort of a funny feeling, the pit of your stomach. Maybe it's just a lingering curse from having had it so good with Desmond Howard and then Alan Rossum and then even Roel Preston in the you know the 90s to early 2000s you know letting Micah Hyde walk for the great stuff he did on special teams but the latter stages of the Aaron Rodgers era are in large part highlighted by poor special teams play and special teams play of course a big part of a fairly notable coming up short moment as far as getting to the Super Bowl in 2014. A couple of different special teams snafus in that game. So special teams always makes me feel a little bit uneasy. But here comes Rich Bisaccia in 2022 to make everything better. So did he make everything better? I think the conventional wisdom is, yeah, he did actually fix absolutely everything with special teams. We've signed all these guys that just play special teams. Everything is better now. Maybe that's overstating it a little bit. Maybe that's strawmanning the opponent a little bit. But generally speaking, I think there's a perception that Bisaccia did fix everything that the Packers had wrong on special teams. Got them at least pointed in the right direction. And to be fair, I think they did get pointed in the right direction. But I wanted to look through where... Bisaccio went in 2022 and how that compared to his predecessors because we're kind of in the unique position with Bisaccia to get a good comparison between him and two other guys from relatively recent history. In fact, some of the guys playing on special teams now are start holdovers even from 2020, not a lot. And in fact, I think even Mason Crosby may have been one of the last guys standing there. But the point is, you can compare Rich Bisaccia's work in 2022 pretty easily to two coordinators who came before him, Maurice Drayton in 2021 and Sean Menenga in 2020, who was there for 2019 as well. So what's the comparison? Let's talk about it. Comparing those three seasons should give us some pretty good perspective on where Bisaccia actually ranked. We've got some good overall rankings to look at. Rick Goslin is considered the final word on special teams by a lot of national and local sports writers. His special teams ranking are is is basically the gold standard. And the Packers last year ranked 22 in his overall composite special teams ranking. For comparison's sake, in 2021, they were 32nd. In 2020, they were 29th. So some big steps forward there. By pro football focus grade, They had an overall ranking of 26th in the NFL last season. That's up from 31st in 2021 and 29th in 2020. By DVOA, Football Outsiders overall metric there. I don't even know if we say Football Outsiders metric anymore. Apparently Aaron Schatz is leaving uh, uh, 
Football Outsiders for, well, I don't know if it's greener pastures exactly, but it's a complicated situation if you haven't looked into what's going on with Football Outsiders, and I feel for everybody involved there except for the people who bought the site. Anyway, he's leaving. I don't know if he's taking DVO away with him exclusively. In any case, developed at footballoutsiders.com, the overall DVOA metric for special teams had the Packers ranked 17th in 2022. That's up from 21st in 2021 and 25th in 2020. So generally speaking, some improvement. They're headed in the right direction. But digging into some of the deeper numbers, you start to see that there may be some fool's gold toward the Packers' overall improvement. Looking at, well, DVOA breaks things down into a bunch of different categories as far as special teams go, and that makes sense. There's a bunch of different phases to special teams, but the four big ones, kickoff, kickoff return, punt, punt return, and field goals and extra points. So five big phases there. Three different kicks, two different coverages. Kickoffs, punts, field goals, and kickoff coverage and punt coverage. In terms of field goals and extra points, the Packers ranked 12th in 2022, which was an improvement over where they were in 2021. And of course, the big problem with the 2021 Packers is they could not block on field goals and extra points. Tyler Lancaster, for as many good things as we said about him over the years, just had problems seemingly down in and down out, figuring out how to get things blocked on the field goal team. And Maurice Drayton, for whatever reason, decided that he was going to keep him out there, down in and down out. It didn't work. The Packers ranked 32nd in that category of DVOA in 2021, down from 5th in 2020. So 2021, kicks getting blocked left and right. That seems like a personnel issue, which was fixed in 2022 by taking Tyler Lancaster off the team entirely, putting Tyler Davis out there in his stead. But it's not like the Packers were really up at the highest heights like they were in 2020. So this seems less like a Bisaccia issue and more like a personnel problem. They solved their protection problem, but the kicker was less healthy this year than in 2020. 2020, Mason Crosby was healthy. 2022, he was not. So they didn't get to be as good because they didn't have as good of a kicker, even though they were having fewer kicks blocked. That doesn't seem like a Bisaccia thing. Kickoffs. Packers rank 6th in 2022, up from 8th in 21 and uh, 11th in 2020. Still improvement, not tons and tons, but still some improvement. We'll chalk that up as a win for Bisaccia. Kickoff return. By DVOA, the Packers tied with the Buffalo Bills for first in the entire NFL, up from 31st in 2021 and 28th in 2020. Obviously, this is way better. But how much credit can we give Rich Bisaccia for that? It's a personnel issue, I think, first and foremost, because all the change the Packers really made on kickoff return, really from 2020 to 2022, and really early 2021 to later 2021, is subbing out Amari Rodgers for Keyshawn Nixon. That is an improvement, and Bisaccia did pull the trigger on that. But how much credit can you really give him if he let Amari Rodgers stay out there that long. And on the flip side, how much leeway did Bisaccia really have when, you know, you've got your third round pick out there and the Packers really seem to want to use him? What can you really do? 
Well, finally they did do something and things got a whole lot better, but it's hard to give Bisaccia a whole lot of credit for that. And furthermore, looking at the Packers' overall DVOA ranking, 17th, it's bolstered a lot by them finishing so high in kickoff return, which we can credit in large part to Keyshawn Nixon. Punting, second in 2022. Their punt team was pretty good, up from 16th in 2021 and down actually, well, up slightly, excuse me, from fourth in 2020. I think this is another situation where you have to give some credit to Rich Bisaccia because what was different in 2020 versus, or 2022 versus 21? The Packers brought in Pat O'Donnell, who had a career year in at least one area, pinning people deep inside the 20. Bisaccia wanted Pat O'Donnell. There's a long history of him pursuing O'Donnell. He talked about how uh, Pat O'Donnell did, actually, well, in fact, talked about how he, Bisaccia, tried to get O'Donnell to come over from Chicago to the Raiders while Bisaccia was the special teams coach there. Didn't ultimately end up working out, but they ended up working together now in Green Bay. O'Donnell has a great year. The Packers have a great year punting the football, at least by this metric, and we'll get to that in a second. But it seems like Bisaccia's strategy paid off. However, it's still only a slight improvement over J.K. Scott and Sean Menenga from 2020. And of course, you have uh, Corey Bajorquez in 2021. Didn't work out as well as we thought. But um, that approach may be coming back a little bit here this year, and we'll talk about that when we, we dive into personnel. So this is normally something we would credit, I think, as a personnel win for the Packers, but given how involved Bisaccia was in this area, I think we do give him some credit for the Packers improving on their in their punt game. However, there is one small aspect of the punt game that the Packers did not do particularly well. Pat O'Donnell got pressured a whole lot. Seth Walder of ESPN does a lot of different analytics work for the the, the worldwide leader. Uh, he posted a metric not too long ago that showed the Packers were uniquely bad in allowing pressures on punts. I think they allowed about twice as many as the next highest team on that list. So bad that if you stacked everything up by a color gradient, as Walder did in his release, the Packers had their entire own color all to themselves. So if green is really good and red is really bad, the Packers were a shade of red that belonged to them and them alone. They were the worst team in the NFL in terms of allowing pressures on punts. That doesn't seem to factor into the DVOA metrics that much, though the Packers did have two punts blocked, which can't do that much for your punting game overall, and it's possible that I'm reading all these numbers wrong to begin with. But punting the football, the Packers did do some things well, including pinning guys deep, pinning teams deep a lot. And I think a lot of that has to do with Bisaccia. Finally, punt return. The Packers were 19th in 2022, up from 30 in 2021 and 24th in 2020. They were better, but they were mainly better just by not being the worst. And this is a small personnel change too. I wonder if they'd been higher had they had Keyshawn Nixon out there returning punts for the entire season. Alas, they didn't. And that's a situation where we can't give Bisaccia, again, too much credit. So, overall, all that to say, the Packers were better on special teams in 22 than they were in 21. But I don't know how much credit we can give to Bisaccia for that. He made some wise personnel calls, advocated for some guys that I don't know if the Packers would normally have gone out and gotten. How much are they spending on punter? 
Uh, are they going out and getting a guy like Pat O'Donnell if Rich Passaccia is not the guy on special teams? We don't know, but I think it's fair to wonder. Given the Packers' strategy on special teams in the Gutekunst era, I kind of think they, they'd have gone to the draft and gotten somebody cheaper than Pat O'Donnell. They drafted J.K. Scott. They traded a late-round pick for Corey Bohorquez. That seems to be their M.O. They paid a little bit more to bring in O'Donnell. That improved their punt team. They did improve on things like kickoff coverage and kickoff return. Some of that seems like a pretty big personnel move or, or pretty largely tied to just a personnel move, which is good, but how much credit can you give to Bisaccia for that? What I'm really interested in we took a, the long way to get here, obviously, but I think you understand how that goes on this particular Packers podcast. That's just kind of how we do things, going going in depth on on some stuff like this, looking at the nitty gritty about some stats and stuff. The thing that I am interested in is how things look here in year two, because I think if we accept the premise that the Packers' approach on special teams has changed, that they're willing to pay guys to play exclusively on special teams, that they're really going to be aggressive about trying to upgrade their specialist, their long snapper, which they've done, their punter, which they're they're still having some competition for their punter. They're going out and drafting a kicker. If that approach holds through this year, and there's, I mean, it's it's going to hold because they brought back basically their entire special teams core from last year, Dallin Levitt, Rudy Ford, Tyler Davis, all those guys that were high up in you know special team snaps and tackles, they're almost all back. Plus, they've also got Jonathan Owens and Tervarius Moore, athletic special teams-focused guys. That approach is continuing. So can the Packers become a real force here on special teams in year two? Because if special teams is more like offense and defense than the Packers have historically treated it, and if you really need to build up that core of players and give them time to work together, then we should see some real next-level improvement in year two of the Bisaccia era, if that theory all holds. And if you accept that premise that things should get better when you hold that core together for multiple years, the Packers have done that now. Now it's time to really see if the Bisaccia hire can make some some significant difference for this team in Green Bay. There is my spiel on Rich Bisaccia. We haven't even talked about expectations because I don't even know if if we can do that. The the expectation is that they'll be better, I think, than they were in in 2022. We'll talk about exactly where we think they'll land when we do our team-level predictions later into training camp and stuff like that, but I think it's fair to expect them to be better than they were in 2022 in 2023. Let's talk a little bit about the individual players on special teams because we've got five different specialists we need to talk about here as part of our position-by-position preview. The first is Anders Carlson, and we are breaking tendency a little bit here. I don't want to do high, medium, low expectations for these guys for a couple of reasons. First, compared to everybody else, they've got a pretty small sample size. I think judging guys on meeting expectations on the small sample sizes that you get from kickers and punters and things like that uh, is tough. It's it's not really it's not really going to end up being fair to those guys individually. Just as an example, let's circle back to 2021. Mason Crosby does not have a great year that year, but at least two he had at least two kicks I think blocked in the regular season, maybe three. And there were at least two other field goals that were affected uh, either by the rush or by a poor snap or hold. 
So he ends up missing like four field goals that he really never even got a shot at, which of course tanks your accuracy since you're kicking 20, 25 field goals in a given season. If you take four of those and chalk them up as misses right away, it's going to tank your overall numbers pretty significantly. So just setting statistical thresholds and saying, did they meet expectations kind of gets silly at a point. So I just don't want to do that. What I do want to ask is one significant question about each of the guys that the Packers have. So they've got five specialists on the roster right now that could change between now and the start of training camp a week from now, but it's the guys we've got. We've got Anders Carlson, we've got Pat O'Donnell, we've got Daniel Whalen, we've got Broton Hatcher, and we've got Matt Orzech. Orzech, excuse me. Those are the five that we've got. We did have six. We had another kicker around until not too long ago, but Anders Carlson is the only leg in town for right now. So let's start with Mr. Carlson, the rookie kicker. My big question about Mr. Carlson, another hand-picked Bisaccia specialist, it seems, given his connection to Carlson's brother, is how does he handle things when they don't go well? There was an article to this effect on Packers.com earlier in this offseason. That has been in the back of my mind ever since I've read that article. Because it's kind of a variation of the Muhammad Ali quote, or I guess it's Mike Tyson quote, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Everybody's going to be the world's most consistent kicker until you go out there on a given afternoon and blow two of your three kicks. It's going to happen. It happens to everybody at some point. It happened to Mason Crosby a couple of times. He had a really bad year in 2012, and he had a really bad year in 2018. How do you handle it when things aren't going well? How do you process that? It's dangerous to do, but we're going to do it anyway. But I always put myself in, try to put myself in the, in the shoes of the guy who's doing it. How would I handle something like that? And the question, the answer is I don't really know. The closest comparison that I have is back close to 10 years ago now when I was anchoring news at WTMJ in Milwaukee. You know, you you have a day where you anchor, well, sometimes I would get there at 10 o'clock in the morning, work the 10 to 6 shift just because then you cover midday, afternoon drive time, and then you can transition into the evening and uh, hand it over to the people who are going to be working working the overnight shifts. But get there at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I would anchor the first newscast at 10.30, and we would have stuff every half hour for the rest of the day. You end up anchoring something like 14 or 15 different newscasts just over the course of an eight-hour shift. That's a lot of writing. It's a lot of being on air. And the thing about doing things live on air is you, you only got one chance to get it right. So you got a newscast, you sit there, and you've got a 90-second hit at the bottom of the hour. You've got about a three-minute newscast at the top of the hour. And if things don't go well in the top of the hour newscast, sometimes that can carry over into the bottom of the hour newscast. So maybe you misfire a soundbite, you mispronounced a name, sometimes you get, you know, world news, you got to talk about Johar Sarnayev or something like that. He was the Boston Marathon bomber. It took me a long time to get his name right, and I may not have even said it right there. Uh, But you have to do things right the first time on air. And sometimes if you mess it up, the next time you see that name... It messes you up again, and suddenly you start to get in a rut. You said it on air twice wrong the same way. Are you going to say it wrong again the third time? And then what about the fourth time? And it's possible to start spiraling a little bit. So what happens? How do you handle that when that happens? You get over it with repetition. 
You remind yourself, as my great broadcasting professor Mark Senius said in college, that once you're done with the broadcast, it's on its way to Mars. There's nothing you can do about it. It's gone. You miss fire on a newscast? Them's the breaks. It happens sometimes. You got to start doing the next one. Got to start writing for next time. And then you just come up with little tricks to get your mind off of things as you're getting ready to do stuff. How does an NFL kicker do their version of that? Understanding the pre- that the pressure is many times greater, I would think. Because when you're an NFL kicker, you might only have one field goal attempt and two or three extra point attempts in a given game. How do you flush the bad ones and just look forward to the next kick? What does it take? And do you have the mental makeup to do that? Does Anders Carlson have the makeup to do that? We won't know until we see him screw up. Maybe he'll just never screw up. He'll be the only perfect kicker in NFL history. He'll never have to handle any adversity. Looking at how unlikely that is, it becomes a real question of how he'll handle things when things don't go well. So that's my biggest question on Carlson. As far as Pat O'Donnell goes, my big question is, can he show why his style of punting matters? There's been an interesting sort of uh, meta-evolution of punting styles in the college and pro ranks, I think, over the past few years. Uh, The punt god, Matt Areza from San Diego State, San Diego State, I think it was, it doesn't really matter, has kind of shown pretty conclusively that I think the best style of punting is just kicking the ball as hard as you can. It's nice to be able to do directional punts. It's nice to be able to punt accurately. But really, the most value you get out of punting is just blasting the ball downfield and trying to pin the other team deep as much as you possibly can. Pat O'Donnell is not that kind of punter. He's really more the assassin, the sniper style punter. He wants to pin guys deep, and he's darn good at it too. Last year was a career year for him, but not by all that much. He's had other really good years of pinning guys deep. He's never been a huge leg guy. He's always been more the accuracy guy. So can he show that that style of punting still has value in the NFL? And I'm skeptical long-term as to whether or not it does. The reason is his punts are most valuable when you're getting to an area of the field where you should probably be thinking about not punting anyway. So if Pat O'Donnell is averaging about 45 yards per punt and you want him to pin the ball deep, where is he going to be punting from to be the most accurate and most impactful most of the time? in the area of like your opponent's 45 to your own 45, right around midfield, right? That's an area of the field where you should really be thinking about going for it more often than not anyway. You're starting to get to the point where another 15 yards, you're well within field goal range. And if you don't land it inside the 20 or heaven forbid it goes into the end zone for a touchback, you're not gaining all that much field position by punting. If you've got a guy who can do it well, it ends up being valuable. But if he can't or if he misfires, it ends up just being a tactical error to be punting at all in the first place. So can O'Donnell show that that kind of punting matters? And I think that's an important question and more of a relevant question this year than it normally would be because of who else is in camp this year. 
Daniel Whalen. Packers have another punter in camp, despite O'Donnell having a fairly, I guess for a punter, especially a punter in Green Bay, a fairly sizable contract. So actually, I have two questions when it comes to Whalen. First, could he give Rich Bisaccia a reason to switch? Can he show that the big leg style of punting is worth keeping around and making the pivot to? Can he give Rich Bisaccia a reason to switch away from something that he has shown to be his preference, at least in Green Bay? Or maybe on a related note, could he give the Packers a reason to keep two punters? Maybe that isn't as crazy as it sounds. The Packers, last year, for the most of the season, had two kickers on the roster. That was partly because Mason Crosby was dealing with some lingering injury stuff, but partly because the second kicker just had a different skill set from Crosby. A big, strong leg might be valuable enough that you decide to make a switch at some point during the season and maybe want to keep a second punter around just as an insurance policy. I'm not saying that's likely. I'm not saying that's the smart way to do things, but the Packers have kept two punters around to this point in the offseason. It's not just a token competition, you'd have to think at this point. There is some reason to have the second punter around heading into training camp, if indeed he lasts throughout the week. What is it? Can he show enough to get the Packers to switch to him or keep a second punter around on the practice squad. Let's talk about Broughton Hatcher. No significant big-time questions here other than more of a philosophical one. How good would he have to be for the Packers to either move on from one of their only free agent signings of this offseason or, again, possibly keep a second guy around on the, on special, on the practice squad. He does seem to, have, to be a better prospect than Jack Coco was, but the Packers did go out and spend money on a guy who's been around in the NFL for a while, and Matt Orzek. So can, can he justify, help the Packers justify keeping a second guy around? I don't know. What would it take to keep two long snappers in in camp or in Green Bay into the regular season? Quite a bit, I have to imagine. Finally, the only real question I have as far as the Packers' actual long snapper, Matt Orzech, Orzech, sooner or later we're going to get the pronunciation right there on the first attempt. Maybe I just need to do a couple news broadcasts about it. But can he be more consistent than Jack Coco? Looking back, Coco was a bit of an odd decision for the Packers, considering that he was not even really a deep snapper throughout most of his time in in college. I may have that backwards. It was either field goals or punts that he did not do in college and thus arrived in Green Bay having having not done essentially half the job for his entire college career. Colleges will sometimes do that. They'll have one guy handle the, the short snaps, the field goals, the extra points, and one guy do the deep snaps, the long snaps. Coco had not done one of those two. As an NFL long snapper, Orzek has apparently done both of those things, you'd have to imagine. So can he be more consistent than Coco, who, though he was okay at times, had some up and down issues, which ultimately led to the Packers going in a different direction? I'd have to think he can be. How much more is going to be the real question, and 
if he can be more consistent, how much does it help this overall Packers special teams unit? That's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.